Revelation chapter 3. You know, several years ago, when uh, my oldest son was but a teenager, I had, uh, he decided he wanted to go deer hunting one deer season, and, and uh, he never had been real interested in guns or hunting or fishing or any anything of the sorts and and so when he asked me if I could take him deer hunting that year I was I was pretty excited and and so I took him out he was he was probably 16 15 16 years old at this time and um, we found some government land out that we was going to hunt on and took him out bright and early before sunrise got him out we sat down while we were sitting there, we had some hunters come walking in on us, just talking like you and I would be talking, you know, standing out on the front porch. And and uh, so we got up and we moved from there. We went and found and windy. Oh, my goodness, it was windy that day. And uh, I'd put him up in a tree stand and give him a radio, and I had a radio, and I'd went and set myself up, and, and uh, the wind was just howling. I mean, it was just shaking the trees and and so I hollered at him. I said, we, we need to go to a different place. I said, this is just, this is, we're not going to see anything up here on these ridges. And um, so I picked it. So we, we walked down, and we, we walked down through these valleys, kind of down. There were several ravines that kind of come into this one area. And I was standing there talking to him, and I told him, I said, listen, we need to find a place to set up. I said, because if them deer come in, they're going to come down these, these draws down through here. If these hunters start moving around, they're going to draw, you know, push these deers down these draws. And as I'm telling him that, I look up, and here come two deer running along the hillside. And I told him, I said, there, 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 there's a deer right there. And he goes, where? I said, right there. He goes, where? I said, right there, right in front of you. I took his head, and I pointed him in that direction. He goes, I don't see him. I said, son, there's two of them right there. I don't see him, Dad. I said, well, you're fixing to see one of them. And so I pulled up, and I, I pulled the trigger, and I shot the, the bigger of the two. And uh, he goes, oh, oh, yeah, there I see it. Well, the little one, it runs out a little bit farther, and it stops, and it's standing there. I said, son, shoot it. I said, it's, it's just standing there. He's like, okay. Well, he pulls up, and he shoots, and it, it high kicks, so I knew he had a bad hit, hit on it. And it just runs out a little bit, and it stops, and it's just standing there. And I said, son, shoot it again. I said, I don't want to have to trace this thing down. So he pulls up and shoots and misses, shoots again, misses, shoots again, misses. I said, son, what are you doing? I said, shoot it again. He said, I can't. I'm out of bullets. I said, well, I'm going to put it down. He goes, well, Dad, let me put it down. I said, okay. I said, well, here's my gun. Well, he pulls up. Well, this time he shoots it. He gets it. He knocks it down. It hits the ground. Man, he's excited. I mean, he's beside himself. So now we're going to go look at our, our deer. You know, and, we, and he's like, Dad, can we go look at mine first? And I'm like, yeah, we can get over there. Now, mind you, this was a little deer. He shot a little bitty deer. And we come out there. Well, the deer was laying there, and its mouth was going. And it had milk running out of its mouth. And I'm just, I'm standing there looking. I'm like, man, good job, son. Good. I look back, and his eyes are this big around. He's like. 
And I could see that he was absolutely mortified at what he was looking at. He sees that deer laying on the ground. Its mouth is moving. Its eyes is open. And I looked at him and I said, son, I said, it's dead. I said, it just doesn't know it's dead yet. And you know, this is the thing. To be something and not know that you are that something is bad. Um, take, for instance, uh, I work with a man who, for, for the most part, has been angry as long as I've known him. Now, without saying anything more than that, Larry knows exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the name right there. With that, all I had to do was say that ever since I've known him, he's been angry. And, and Larry knew exactly who I was talking about. Well, one day we were all sitting around. We were working out of town. We sat down for dinner, and, and we, became, we started talking politics. Well, I had no idea what his orientation was. Uh, come to find out, it's complete opposite of mine. And we were talking about a certain president, and, man, he was telling me this is the greatest president we've ever had and all the great things. And I said, are you kidding me? And we sat there and we argued back and forth and I looked at him and I said, I said, you know what? I said, if he was my only hope, I would be angry too. And he said, I'm not angry. I said, okay. <laughs> but the thing is, he doesn't even realize how angry he is in life. He has no idea how angry he is. Everything sets him off all day long. Little things set him off. I mean, he will have little temper tantrums all day long. And he doesn't realize how angry he is. You know, I know annoying people who don't know that they're annoying. I know loud people who don't know they're loud. I know stupid people who, well, wait a minute. I can't say stupid. I, I was informed by my grandchildren that I can't say stupid. So let's see. How about mentally deficient people who don't know that they're mentally deficient? <laughs> I know stinky people who don't know they're stinky. And worst of all, I know people who think that they are spiritual who are not spiritual. Now, today we're going to look at a church that is spiritually dead. And they don't know that they're spiritually dead. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are people who believe that they have everything right with God. There are people who come to church. There are people who are leading worship services. There are people who are teaching Sunday school classes. There are people who, who darken the door every time it's open, and they are not right with God. And they don't realize they're not right with God. 
But that's why God has been very clear in his word what a true believer looks like and how a true believer should act and how our life should reflect our Savior. He has given us a mirror, the mirror of his word, to show us what we look like compared to what we should look like. As a matter of fact, I just read Matthew 7, 21 through 23. The verse right before that in verse 20 says, So then you will know them by their fruits. You will know true believers by their fruits. You will know true believers by the life that they live. You will know true believers by the things that they do, by the things that they say, by the way that they act. You will know them by their fruits. But there are people who think that they are right with God and their fruit does not match their proclamation. So... As I said, today we're going to look at a church that thought it was alive. But Jesus said, you are DOA. You're dead on arrival. And unfortunately, I'm afraid there's a lot of churches today that fall into this category. I call it the zombie state. My message today, I called the first church of the zombies, the living dead. And this church is in Sardis. So look at Revelations chapter 3. And unto the church in Sardis write these things, saith, He that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. <clears throat> Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Unto the messenger, or unto the pastor of the church, if you remember the word here that's uh, uh, translated angel can also be translated messenger, uh, which I believe would be a better translation for this. And if you remember, we talked about before these pastors had all come in, John was instructed to write uh, this book of Revelation plus a letter to each one of those churches. So he wrote Revelation seven times and a letter to each one of those churches as Jesus Christ told him what to write. Um, so now we only have three pastors left. They've been traveling up. They would travel up to the first church, which was Ephesus. Then from Ephesus, they left that pastor there, and they moved on to Smyrna. From Smyrna, they went to Pergamos. From Pergamos to Thyatira. And so today we are at Sardis. And so we only have three pastors left, three messengers left. And then they would set out 
for the next church. And then he says, he goes in as he did in previous letters, and he he gives us a description of who he is. And we've seen this description in the first chapter in the vision that John had. He said he has the seven spirits of God. Now, we know through other places throughout the Bible and other places that we've we've, uh, studied that there is only one Holy Spirit. We know that. We know that that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there is only one Spirit. And Jesus says, I am he who has the seven spirits. So the question is this, what is he talking about? Now, a lot of commentators believe that this lines up with Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which says this. So then, or the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And this is talking about the Messiah. This is a Messianic uh, prophecy in Isaiah eleven twelve, And he says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you have seven attributes of the Holy Spirit mentioned here in Isaiah eleven two, The Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord. So what he's talking about is not seven different spirits, but seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. And we also know this, that the number seven means completion, right? It means fullness. When we see that, and it talked about the seven churches, it talked about the seven pastors, it talks about the seven spirits, what this is talking is about And we know that although this is a real church, we know that Sardis is a real church, but this represents churches throughout history. And when it said the seven churches, that means the church is in fullness. These letters are written to all churches of all times. And when it talks about the seven stars, which was the seven pastors, that represents all pastors of all times. These letters are, are handed to them also. But it talks about the Holy Spirit, the seven attributes, the Holy Spirit in fullness. He says, Jesus, he says, I have the Holy Spirit in fullness. And then he goes on to say that I have the seven stars. So what he is saying in this part here is that Jesus describes himself um, as the supreme ruler who works in his church through the Holy Spirit and through godly pastors. This is the description that he's given to Sardis, that, which is interesting because you look at all of the other churches, and, and every time there was something wrong inside of that church, Jesus described himself as one who would come with authority, who would come uh, with judgment. And yet here was Sardis, the dead church, He describes himself as the one who has the fullness of the Spirit, who has the the seven pastors in his hand. So why didn't you would think coming to Sardis, the dead church, he would look at them and say, you know what, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. But this was the thing. The church is dead. He doesn't have to, to promise to kill them because they're dead. They have nothing to, to reprimand. They are not even alive. You don't go up and reprimand a dead body. It does no good. 
Another thing that we'll notice when we look at this is with every other church, he gave them their accommodations first. Not with Sardis. With Sardis, he goes right into talking about the things that they are doing wrong. Now, we don't know much about the church of Sardis. This is another one of those churches that we don't have a lot of church history about. We don't know when it started. We don't know who started it. We don't know anything about of that. Um, the only prominent person that history speaks about coming out of Sardis church was a man by the name of Melito. Melito wrote the first known commentaries on Revelation. Now, the, the encouraging thing, one of the things we always ask, because we see at the end where Jesus tells them, you either turn or I'm going to take, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to you know, snuff out your candle. And one of the encouraging things that we know is that Melito wrote his commentary somewhere in the second century. So the church had lasted at least up to Melito when he wrote these commentaries on Revelation. Uh, there is no mention of persecution in the church. Um, the church is dead. There is no need for Satan to persecute a church that's already dead, right? Um, I remember a time whenever I was a young believer and I'd, I'd showed up on the job site and I was receiving a lot of persecution. I, I, a lot of, I was catching a lot of flack because of my Christian faith. I was very bold about my faith. Uh, I was very boisterous about my faith. And so I caught a lot of uh, flack from leadership and from different people at, at the job. And, and I always just kind of took it with a grain of salt. And there was a, a gentleman there by the name of Kenny. He was an older man. And one day he looked at me and he said, you know why you're receiving so much persecution, right? And I said, I, I suppose. I said, why, what are you saying? <coughs> he said, well, he said, let me take for instance. He said, how, he said, how do you hold your banner of righteousness? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, your banner of righteousness. He said, how do you hold it? I said, I don't know what you're getting at. He said, you take your banner of righteousness, and he said, you walk around like this with it. He said, you're walking around the job site with your banner of righteousness like this. And he said, you're in everybody's face. You're showing them that, that you're a Christian. You're telling them uh, about your life. You're, you are bold about your faith. He said, now I'm a Christian. He said, but how do I hold my banner of righteousness? He said, I fold it up, and I put it in my back pocket. He said, now, if somebody asks me about it, he said, I'll take it out and I'll show it to them. He said, but I fold it up and I put it back when I'm done. He said, so let me ask you a question. Who do you think Satan wants to attack, me or you? He said, because I'm not causing any problems around here. He said, you're keeping it stirred up all the time. He said, so who is the enemy going to attack, you or me? You see, this is the thing about Sardis. There was no need for Satan to attack Sardis because Sardis was already dead. Sardis was already a part of the problem. It's kind of like a dead fish, right? It doesn't go against the current. It just goes wherever the current pulls it. This was Sardis. Sardis was not a problem. It was not a problem in the community. It wasn't a problem for anybody. And especially it was not a problem for Satan. Sardis was founded somewhere around 1200 B.C. 
Um, there are a couple of famous people that came out of Sardis. Now, the first one I had not heard of. Some of you may have. Uh, his name was uh, King Croesus. Apparently, there's a, there was a saying that used to be spoken that said that he was as rich as Croesus. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, it must be something from the north. I don't know. I'd never heard it around here. Um, now, the other famous person... You may not know who he is, but I promise you've heard his works. His name is Aesop, and he wrote Aesop Fables. And so just so we kind of understand who this man is, how many of you ever heard of the story of the town mouse and the country mouse, or the fox and the grapes, or the lion and the mouse, or the wolf in sheep's clothing, or the goose that laid golden eggs, or the boy who cried wolf, or the dog and the bone, or the tortoise and the hare. Them were all Aesop fables. And they believed that Aesop came from Sardis, that that's where he was, he was originated from. Um, but those are the only two that, that I could find any history on. Um, now... <laughs> That guy there, uh, Aesop, he had somewhere around 600 fables of, of like manner. And most of his fables where he took animals and put them with, with human personalities. And there was always a uh, reason for the story. This is the moral of the story. And, uh, and you can find those stories. Now, much of Sardis's wealth came from gold that was gathered out of the, the Pactolus River. They believe that gold and silver coins were first minted at Sardis. Wool and wool garments and the dyeing of wool garments. As a matter of fact, Sardis bragged that they were the first to learn how to dye wool. And so they had that going on. Now, there was an interesting thing about Sardis. I found this really interesting in one commentary that I wrote. And I want to read this to you, but it talks about where they were placed at and how strategically they were placed and upon what type of, of plateau that they were on, uh, they believed that they were undefeatable because of where they were at. And I want to read this to you. It says, Sardis was located about 30 miles south of Thyatira in the fertile valley of the Hermas River. A, river, a series of spurs of hills jutted out of the ridge of Mount uh, Timulus. Timulus, south of the, the Hermes River. On one of those hills, some 1,500 feet above the valley floor, 1,500 feet, stood Sardis. Its location made the city all but impregnable. The hill on which Sardis was built had smooth, nearly perpendicular rock walls on three sides. So it was basically just a, a plateau that jetted out of the side of the mountain, 1,500 feet, and then the walls on three sides were straight up and down. And so they believed that there was only one way into the city, and that was through the back side. Um, let's see. And it only from the south could the city be approached via a steep, difficult path. The one drawback to an otherwise ideal site was that there was limited room for the city to expand. Eventually, as Sardis grew, a new city sprang up at the foot of the hill, and the old site remained a refuge to retreat into 
uh, when danger threatened. Its seemingly impregnable location caused the inhabitants of Sardis to become overconfident. Uh, The complacency eventually led to the city's downfall. Through carelessness, the unimaginable happened. Sardis was conquered. The news of its downfall sent shockwaves through the Greek world. Even in John's day, several centuries later, a proverbial saying equated to capture the Acropolis of Sardis with to do the impossible. Despite an alleged warning against self-satisfaction by the Greek god whom he consulted, Croesus, the king of Lydia, initiated an attack against Sirius, uh, the king of Persia, but was soundly defeated, returning to Sardis to recoup and to rebuild his army for another attack. He was pursued quickly by Cyrus, who laid siege against Sardis. Croesus felt utterly secure in his impregnable situation atop the Acropolis, Acropolis and foresaw an easy victory over the Persians who were uh, cornered among the per- perpendicular rocks in the lower city. An easy prey for the assembling Lydian army to crush. After retiring one evening while the drama was unfolding, he awakened to discover that the Persians had gained control of the Acropolis by scaling one by one the steep walls. So secure did the Sardians feel that they left this means of access completely unguarded. Um, After, uh, let's see... Permitting the climbers to ascend unobserved, it is said that even a child could have defended the city from this kind of attack. But not so much as one observer had been appointed to watch the side that was believed to be inaccessible. History repeated itself more than three and a half centuries later when Antichicus the Great conquered Sardis by utilizing the services of a sure-footed mountain climber from Crete. In 195 B.C., his army entered the city by another route while the defenders, in careless confidence, were content to guard the one known approach. The isthmus of the land connected to Mount Tamalus on the south. Sardis never regained its independence, eventually coming under Roman control in 133 B.C., A catastrophic earthquake destroyed the city in A.D. 17, but it was rebuilt with the generous financial aid of Emperor Tiberius. In gratitude, the inhabitants of Sardis built a a temple in his honor. The city's primary objective was to worship. Objective of worship, however, was the goddess Cybele, the same goddess worshipped at Ephesus and Artemis, or the, the goddess Diana. Hot springs not far from Sardis were celebrated as a spot in which the gods manifested their supposed power to give life to the dead. Isn't that interesting? They believed the gods would bring life, and they were a dead church and didn't even know they were dead. And then at the end of verse 3 here, we see where Jesus tells him, he says, um, And thou shalt not... Where am I at there? Remember, and I have received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come to thee like a thief in the night, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. I'm sorry, it was verse 2 I wanted. Last part. For I have found thy works, 
not perfect before God. I know your works. Jesus, and once again, we see, because we've seen that Jesus was described as having eyes like lasers, eyes of fire. They see everything that goes on inside of the church. They see every reason, every reason for the things that they do. They see the hearts of those in the pews as well as the hearts of those behind the pulpits. Jesus sees everything about the church, every person. And he says, I know your works and you have come up short. I know what you have done, but it does not make you right with me. He says, you have a name. The lights are on, the doors are open, the pews are full, and you have a good name in the city. And everyone knows the big city in town. Everybody knows the church of Sardis. Everybody knows where it's at. He says, you have activities, you have events, you have outreaches. You have bumpers and T-shirts and, and stickers and ball caps. Now listen, these things are not all bad, but when that's all you have, you have a problem. And Jesus declared them dead. He said, you have a lot of things going on in your church, but you are dead. You have a name in the community, but you are dead. And you know, activity and movement doesn't necessarily mean that something is alive. And I can prove it. How many of you have ever seen a chicken get its head cut off? What happened? Was there activity? Was it dead? <laughs> yeah. Just activity doesn't necessarily mean that there's life. And Jesus said, you have activity. Your church is, is active. You are doing things in the community. You have your doors open, the lights are on, but you are dead. Spiritually, you are not right with me. You have a good name in the community, but you have no name whatsoever with me. You are dead. You've been defiled by the world. You have unsaved members. You have unsaved leadership. You have apostate teachers and preachers in your church now this is the thing and the thing that we have to understand is this that sardis at one time was alive at one time they had it right at one time they had received the gospel but over this short period very short period of time something happened and, and sin had creeped into the church so what was it what is it we should be looking for in a church to find out if, if the church is dying? And I come across this list of things that a church can look at to, to see if it's in trouble. Number one, when a church is content with past achievements, when it always looks back to the way it was, when it always looks back to how it used to be, when they always talk about how great the services were back then and how many people were saved back then and how many people were baptized, when they always look to the past and never plan for the future, when they're more concerned with worship styles than they are spiritual reality, when it, when it focuses on 
um, curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts through the preaching of the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. When it is more concerned with material than spiritual things, when it is more concerned with what men think than what God said, you remember last week I talked about a gentleman who had told me that the reason their church closed their doors during, during all of this was because what would, the, what would people think if we were the only church that stayed open? You're more concerned about what men think than what God has said. When you are more enamored with doctrinal creeds and systems of theology than with the Word of God, when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the Word of God Himself, and no matter what its attendance, no matter how impressive its buildings, no matter what its status in the community, such a church having denied the only source of spiritual life is dead. And the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. What killed this church? Sin killed this church. Jesus said at the end of verse 2, he said, I have not found thy deeds completed in the sight of God. They depended on their works to keep their doors open and their pews full. But God said in Isaiah 64, 6, He says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep away. He said, listen, when you think that it's your good works that saves you, when you think it's the good things that you do that give you credit with God, he said, your works are worthless. And the, the interesting thing about it, and I, I know this is absolutely disgusting, but it, when it speaks of filthy rags, it's actually talking about the rags that the women used when they were menstruating. He said, all of your works are like filthy menstruating rags when you try to use those works to work yourself into heaven he said they're worthless they are absolutely worthless so long how long had they been dead how long had sardis been dead like samson they had no idea when the spirit of god had left them They had no idea when he had left them. Now look at verse 4 again. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Even in this church, even in this church, this dead church of Sardis, there were people who were right with God. There were people, now just a few of them, he said, I have a few there that have not gotten involved with the false teaching, that haven't gotten involved with all of these these things that you've got. There are just a few. And remember, you think, well, why in the world would them type of people be in that church? This is the only church that they have. There's only one church in the city of Sardis. One. That's it. 
one city, the nearest church that, that you had beyond that was you could either travel 30 miles to Thyatira, which was not a good place to go. They were off, much better off than, than Sardis was. Or you could go down to Philadelphia, which is another 30 miles. But they had to go, and Philadelphia would have been a good one to go to because it was only one of the two that didn't receive any type of, uh, of reprimand. But 30 miles, can you imagine And so the only church that they had was the church that they had in Sardis, this dead church. That was all they had. But there was a handful of them together in that church. And the word soiled there, it means to be, you're not defiled, you're not smeared or polluted uh, with the things that are going on. They were not caught up in the false teachings, the open sin that was taken in the church. The lust of the flesh, all of those things that that caused this church to die. Jesus said, they will walk with me in white. Now, the white garments that he talked about, these are celebration clothes. They will walk with me in celebration clothes, festival clothes, and they will be white, which speaks of purity. They will receive absolute purity. They will receive absolute, the, the purest form of righteousness in their robes. And he says, listen, if this church is to be revived, if this church has any hope whatsoever, it has to fall on those that are alive. It has to fall on those that have not defiled their clothing. And so Jesus gave them a a set of commands, and he said, you want to save the church, you want to make sure that, that I don't come in and wipe this church out, these are the things you need to do. First thing he said, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. Man, I've been saying that a lot here lately. We need to wake up. This nation needs to wake up. We need to realize not everything is as it seems to be. Wake up before it's too late is what he's telling them. (coughs) There's no time for indifference. You can't just go with the flow. You're going to have to to cause some waves. You're going to have to rock the boat. You're going to have to wake up and, and, and move into action. It's time to confront sin. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And that's what Jesus is telling me. He said, listen, you need to to start judging what's going on inside of this church. You need to start taking control of this. And then he says, you need to strengthen those things that remain. He said, there are remnants of some biblical things that are going on inside of the church. Probably just out of tradition. There isn't anything that they're doing spiritually because they're dead. But he says, you need to get a hold of those things. And you need to make sure that that's what you hang on to because they're going to die if you don't. Even in bad churches, even in false churches, even in cults, there are remnants of things that go along with biblical teachings. I remember standing at my front door with a couple of Mormons standing there and I kept asking them question after question after question. And every question that they answered back, it sounded just like Christianity. Everything they said, I'm like, that's what we believe. 
That's what we believe. That's what we believe. It wasn't until I said, who do you believe Jesus Christ is, that I found the separation. But he said, there are still good things going on inside of that church at Sardis. Get a hold of them. Get a hold of them and make sure you amplify them and you build them things up before they die too. Before they die along with the church. And then he says, remember. Remember. They were alive at once. He said, think about the way it was years ago. Think about the way it was. Think about the gospel. Think about how you did things. He said, remember those things that you were taught. He says, go back to the truth. Build a solid doctrinal foundation, a biblical foundation. Because by this time, they have the writings of Paul. They have the writings of Peter at this time. He says, go back and and, and build your foundation. And then he says to keep that. Once you get that built up, he said, you keep that. Don't you let it fall away again. And then he says, repent. Repent with remorse and sorrow and genuine repentance. He says, turn away from sin. And then he says, if not, He says, I will come back like a thief. He says, you'll not know when I come back. I will come back like a thief. And Jesus told us what a thief does. He said, a thief comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. He says, I will come back as a thief. And when I come back, I will kill, steal, and destroy. I will destroy the church He is speaking of destruction here. And then verse 5, we're about wound down here. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and we already spoke of that. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Listen, these are true believers in the church. And can you imagine, I, I, I just tried to imagine it in my mind when that, that pastor stood up before that church and he read this letter. Can you imagine the first things that Jesus told him is, you are dead. You are dead. And if you don't change things, I am going to come like a thief and destroy you. I can just imagine these, number one, the people that were in denial and being like, hey, we're a good church. He's not talking to us. Man, we do good things in the community. We've been doing good things. He can't be talking to us. And then you have the true believers that are sitting back there in fear, thinking, is this going to happen to me? Is the things he's talking about going to happen to me? Is this punishment and destruction going to come to me? But Jesus gave him a promise. He gave him a promise. Listen, this was a promise, not a threat. Understand that. This was a promise, not a threat. He said, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will not blot it out. He said, once I put your name in there, I am in complete control of that book. And nobody can take your name. And he said, and I will not take your name out of that book. 
He said, I will never blot your name out. Once it's in the book, I will never blot it out. Listen, we know that the greatest indication of true faith is perseverance. And Jesus calls true believers overcomers. He calls them overcomers. Now, some people believe that what this is is what's called a lidotes. Anybody ever heard that before, lidotes? I had never heard it until I stud- done this study. Um, Lydotes, this is the definition of lidotes. It is an ironic understatement which an affirmative is expressed by the negative of its contrary. That would be like when somebody says, she's not a spring chicken anymore. That is a, an obvious uh, uh, difference. It wasn't terrible when we say, oh, it wasn't terrible, or not too shabby, or it's not exactly a walk in the park. Those are examples of lightities. And what he's saying is, he said he has taken it to the extreme on this to say, listen, this is the thing. I would never blot your name out. That would be the worst case scenario. And I would never do that. I would never take your name out of the book. And some believe and that this is simply talking about a different book than the Lamb's book of life. They believe that the book of life is just what it says, the book of life. That when you are born, your name is placed in the book of life. When you die, your name is taken out of the book of life. And so it's simply saying this. They, some believe that what he's saying is, is that if you don't get your act life or your life right, I am going to take your name, I am going to take your life like Ananias and Sapphira would be an example of that. Take your pick. Take your choice on what you believe. And finally, he says in verse 6, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That draws everybody in because everybody I see sitting out there has ears. Some of you, I can see more ears than others. But I've got, I know you got ears. So he says, listen, this is the thing. You need to listen to what I'm saying here. And I thank God that I am blessed to pastor a church that has a heart for the word of God, that has a heart for the spirit, has a heart for the things of God, which shows me that we live in a church that is alive. And I thank God for that. But I also think we have to be careful and watch and listen to what the Spirit says so that we don't fall into that trap and get caught up in some of the things that will cause a church to die. Would you stand to your feet? Two more churches. One good church and one sick church. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this word. And God, I I pray that you help us to be a light. God, I pray that you help us uh, to recognize, God, the, the, the fallacies, the death that comes to a church when your priorities go wrong. 
God, when you focus on the wrong things, when the word no longer becomes um, infallible, when the word no longer becomes your platform, when the, the word no longer becomes your foundation, God, you're in danger. When you start worrying about what others think, when you start worrying about um, what the community thinks, what, what your government thinks, what other churches think, God, you're in trouble. God, I pray that this church will always be a church that stands, that we are a light upon a hill, God, a beacon of truth. I pray for each one that's here this morning, God, for each of our own personal relationships and, and uh, our own salvation, God. May we have that confidence, God, if we are living a life that's pleasing to God that we are true Christians and that we are overcomers. And God, that you have made us a promise that you would not blot our name out of the book of life. And we thank you for that. And now, Father, as we complete this service, I just pray, God, that you take us all out of here, you keep us safe, and God, you bring us back once again to open your word, to learn of greater things of you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' very precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.